And so what I've decided to do today is just share with you uh, one of the uh, messages from my time with churches. And it's the one that I usually do at the end of this series. I don't go all the way through Nehemiah, but I park right in chapter 6 because it's right at the time uh, towards the end of the uh, building of the wall and it's almost done. And if you are familiar with the account of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is uh, nearly a thousand miles away two months earlier from where we are going to be uh, picking up in Nehemiah. He was minding his own business, working in the king's palace in a sense as his cupbearer when he received some visitors that, says, that said, come and help us with our Wall. We are all uh, in this situation of being vulnerable and we need some help. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, but what I want to take from, away from that is the idea is that the people had been there in the city for decades and the wall was still broken down. And you got to wonder, how does something continue in disrepair for so long? And uh, as I thought about this, I thought about this poem. It's called anybody. It says this, there was an important job to be done, like building a wall, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. <laughs> and so I think that's where Nehemiah comes on the scene uh, while he's there uh, coming out that 1,000 miles and, and such to work on this wall. He now had to work with a bunch of anybody's that could be somebody's, but many times there were the nobodies in this process. He starts working on this wall, and I'll just give you a quick history up to chapter 6, but part of the challenges was not just getting the people to uh, be able to overcome their maybe apathy or distraction or maybe just overwhelmedness of being able to redo the wall, uh, but uh, while he started working on the wall, there was a great mocking that took place because the external forces were attempting to... Uh, to keep them from accomplishing their goal. Then after that, you have the wall halfway up, and then there was a mobilizing of an attack. The, the enemies were willing to not only just jeer and to uh, cause problems by uh, insults, etc. they were actually mobilizing to the point where Nehemiah had to equip his workers with weapons so that they would have not only maybe a trowel in one hand but also a sword in the other and they took turns watching as they were fearful for their very lives while the wall was halfway up and now we find ourselves shortly thereafter Nehemiah and and the people have worked diligently and the wall is complete with exception of the gates and now it goes from the, uh, the jeers and the intimidation, from the uh, wanting to make war, to now the element of manipulation. We're going to talk about this from the vantage point of how that affects us as a church who have been given a great role of making disciples. 
as was read earlier this morning out of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. We are not given the responsibility of building a wall, but we are given the responsibility to make disciples. And just like the people that Nehemiah came upon, uh, we too get distracted. We too might need some motivation. We too might need direction and clarity on how we ought to continue on in that disciple-making process. But we too, like Nehemiah, might have the temptations to get to a point, feel like we've gotten to a certain plateau, and settle and to think that we're all okay. This next chart that I'll show to you on here is a chart that uh, we put together back 20 years ago and I shared it with Faith Baptist Bible College and Chapel as part of my presentation on the importance of intentional disciple making. At that time our church was in the midst of a three and a half year uh, program of helping us restructure our thinking and our ministry to be able to intentionally make disciples and I was pretty excited about that. And so I shared this with the folks there at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College. But one of the things that you'll notice as you uh, look down the chart, it starts about the purpose and the programs, the structure and the change, workers and morale, all down the left side. But across the way, you kind of see where a church goes through some progressions. When a church is really new, and I don't know if any of you have been a part of a church plant before, but there are certain things that are true of a structuring plant where the purpose is clear. We need to build a church. We need to build people. I mean, it's, that's the most clearest thing that that uh, a stage for a church is that, because that's why they're mobilized. That's why we're there. Nobody has to ask half the question, why are we here? Because they know we need to have a church established here. The programs, totally undeveloped. Uh, they're, they're, they're not there. Uh, the structure, undeveloped. Change is instant. Uh, we're meeting here today? Okay, guess what? They're, that let, they're not renting that to us anymore. We're going to meet over here. You know, we can't get it copied over at Kinko, so we're going to have to go over here and do this. Uh, so all the things, change is that. And you can see all those things, the workers, everybody has to be involved. You don't get involved with a church plant if you aren't going to work, right? And so you've got to be a part of that core planting team to be able to do that. And morale is typically high because everything is new. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these areas on these chart, but at some point we get to the middle where it's efficient. This is that place where it's tempting to plateau and eventually go downhill. Uh, because what happens is you got a lot of things that are working well, you got things are cleared, they're carried out, they're developed, they're considered, change is considered, hey we've gotten to where we are, right? And it's worked all these times getting here. Why would we want to change anything? Because we're now in the groove and we're doing what we ought to do. So it's harder to change, but we'll think about that. Yeah, we're, we're not going to do it. Uh, and then uh, what happens is the majority of workers are, are still working. And at this point, morale is the highest because all those things that were so hard, stacking chairs, all that kind of stuff. We got our building, we got all these type of things, and we get to this point and it's going well. We got the programs, etc. Put it on cruise control, right? 
And then what happens is that we get to a place where all of a sudden cruise control doesn't work anymore because people are not developing disciples. They're not having the same fervor for people who need Jesus Christ. Why do we need to do that? We, most of the chairs are filled. The offering is going well. All these type of things that used to be a motivator of saying, we need to fill this building. We need to reach people for Christ. We need to accomplish these things. They are not as important, right? And as a result, things start going down. So as if you were to look at that chart and you see you go from the left-hand side, everything's going higher until you get to a certain point. Now it's starting to decline. 20 years ago, I introduced this, this uh, map, and I have not kept track of the churches that are in our fellowship, but there are churches that have gone through that and have gone down. They were stronger 20 years ago than what they are right now because they have met that point, but they forgot really what their purpose was. And as a result, they get to the point where they're now uh, in survive mode uh, for their purpose. Programs are really irrelevant. They're going on, but it's not accomplishing anything. Uh, their structure is tradition, and that's what we'll do. We've always done it this way. And change is very, very unlikely because of that. And workers tend to be 10%, unless it gets down to where there's only 12 people, then it's like 80%, you know, but it's not doing the work necessarily, the ministry, we're just trying to keep the lights on. And folks, I deal with a lot of churches that way, they give us a call, we want a pastor, we got 20 people, average age is 70. And how does it get there? Because at one point, they had built on a gym, and they had all this stuff, and now they're meeting in this cavernous area, and that's happened. I'm not being judgmental of them, but somehow that, that energy that brought them to the place where they built all that had missed out, and it's gone. And as a result, uh, the uh, morale is totally, totally in despair in regard to that. Our ministry is to try to get to churches before they get to that point. Get them when they're at that excited point where they're recognizing, hey, we're on cruise control, let's wake up. Let's continue to do what God has called us to do to make disciples. I really believe in, in uh, Nehemiah's time, that's what his enemies thought they could do, is try to get Nehemiah at a place where he just got distracted from things and got off the good work that God had called him to do. Uh, let's look at chapter 1, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies. This is the summary of the thing. We've got to this place. We built up the wall. This is what's happening. They heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gate. Uh, but the, the idea is that he's arrived at what needed to be to happen. He had developed these things, and as a result, now they have a new strategy. A strategy, what I would call complacency, uh, that they are going to, to work on, and uh, it starts out uh, with a compromise. Before we look at that, let's look at what went on in Paul's day when he was dealing with the church of Corinth. We talked about Corinth a little bit this morning in Sunday school. Appreciate that excellent lesson on the uh, spiritual gifts. But we talked about how that Corinth struggled with so many different things. Now Paul is writing to them because after Paul had done all those instructional things, someone, some ones had come in and started undermining his ministry. But they did it in a subtle way. They weren't coming in and just simply saying, you know, Paul is this and that. You know, 
they were very subtle. And this is how Paul says, and no wonder, okay? He says, and no wonder for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. In Paul's day, there were individuals that came in and said, hey, we're just like Paul. We're just like doing the same thing. You just need to tweak these things. You just need to do this a little bit differently. And in the book of Galatians, Paul calls that a different gospel that's not even a gospel right type of a thing so there were those type of things that came in where it was subtle and distracting and Satan is typically involved that way it's not always an in-your-face try to take your legs out from underneath you kind of a thing often it's taking a good thing and twisting it and as Satan was so quick to do to, to Eve in the garden and let her know that all she needed to do is, you got all this good stuff, right? You got this good stuff? Just, just try this right over here. Maybe it'll work out better. Uh, when he's uh, trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut and be able to overcome the things that were ahead of him over the next several years. And Satan is trying to help him out. And, uh, you know, you see this. The situation where Satan comes across as like I'm your friend. This is what we're going to see Sanballat, Tobiah, the known enemies of Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem for that matter uh, to come alongside and try to give the impression that he's a friend. Now I got lots of, of content here not going to be flying through this but I want you to just kind of get the, the feel of this out of Nehemiah chapter 6 and if, you, if you're interested in it go back and look over it and see some of the things that are there but I've got all the text up here but you can be open to chapter 6 uh, we're looking at first of all the compromising. Sam Ballot and Geshem sent to me saying come let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono but they thought to do me harm in other words, it's kind of like the idea of, hey, why don't we get together? We're going to go to the village of Ono. And he goes on to say this. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, so they cannot come down. Why should I, the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Gates need to be put up. Some structures need to be put in a place. They're saying, why don't we just get together and go to Ono? Uh, so the, the idea is that they were uh, uh, wanting to get him to be distracted and come out to this neutral site. Now, we're talking about the element of you know, compromise, uh, and we're pretty good at understanding that we shouldn't compromise on things. We're, we're Baptists. You know, we don't compromise, right? We're pretty good at that. Uh, matter of fact, we are so good at it, we don't even understand what deference is, okay? <laughs> and, the, and the differences of those things. It's okay to give in on some things, all right? It's okay. Uh, some of those things are not thus saith the Lord. There are things that we have uh, hung on to, and it's okay to give deference to that but what we have here is we have uh, the the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of Jerusalem the enemies of Nehemiah saying hey let's just get together and we'll go to Ono uh, I don't know about you but when I see that all I can think of is when someone wants me to compromise core values and the things that I know to be right I should say oh no you know, kind of a deal. So hopefully that sticks in your head a little bit there. Don't compromise on those type of things. We have core values, things that are very important. Then we have other things that allow us to be able to do the core values. We ought not to mix those. When, I was, when our kids were at home, I would tell them regularly, you got two sets of rules. 
They're not conflicting. I just want to explain them. One are God's rules. These are the rules you should have in your life, whether you're in our home or not. Okay? Then we have what we call the Owen Home Rules. Those are the ones that we have implemented because we wanted to run this certain way. When you have your home, you might be able to eat pizza on the couch and run your hands all over it. I don't care. That's not in the Bible, but there might be some principles to deal with that. But I wanted our kids to understand there are some things that there are choices on, and there's some things there's no choices on, all right? And I think as churches, we need to get clarity on that. There is not a choice not to make disciples. We can't decide that we're going to emphasize this. Oh, we're going to be this kind of a church. Well, that's fine. Be this kind of a church, but make sure it makes disciples. And that's where uh, the uh, people were trying to get Nehemiah to say, let's get away from that. Let's, let's, let's stop what you're doing. You've been working hard. You've been two months at this thing. Let's just come aside. And then it goes from there to the idea of persistence. They said, but they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. What was his answer? I cannot leave this good work. When we are convinced that we have the work of making disciples and other things come in and want to pull us away from it, we must be able to answer, I cannot leave this great work. Do we have an answer for Satan? When Satan wants to distract us and pull us away from that great work, do we have an answer? Jesus did. came from the scriptures. And our answer can be, when we're distracted to do something that might be good, but it's not the great commission, then we ought to be able to say, oh no, <laughs> uh, this is what God wants us to do. And if what, you're, what we're wanting to do fits in that and allows us to do it, let's do this. Now, uh, the, the pressure continues on, and then if you look at some more of the things that are going on here, it says he, he receives an open letter. It is reported among the nations, and Gershom says, according, and I don't know why Gershom is the uh, uh, E.F. Hutton of this particular day or whatever, but when he talks, I guess people are supposed to listen. But Gershom is saying this, according to these rumors, you want to be their king. Now these matters will be reported to the real king, uh, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. Let's go back to Ono. Let's get together. You, you got, Nehemiah, you're in trouble. You've got some bad PR situation going on, and we can come in and help you. We can help you through that. And uh, so this open letter, uh, people are saying, I have worked with churches for a long time, uh, whether it's in the church where I was a pastor or ones that I'm assisting, uh, there is that common phrase, People are saying, or people will. I call them the no-face, no-name people that run the church. And this is what was trying to be done here in Nehemiah. People are saying these things. You're, this is things you need to fear. Nehemiah is saying, I don't need to fear that. I need to fear God. And we'll see how that plays out as we move our way along. That open letter, <laughs> let us help you, okay? Just like... Uh, um, yeah, anyway, so giving in the pressures, the next uh, thing they said, then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart, for they 
all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Nehemiah realized that he was doing a great work. He's doing this great work and all that Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom wanted to do was to try to distract him from doing that great work. My desire is to encourage us, we aren't building a wall, but we're building into the lives of other people. We're building disciples. We are making disciples and we must not get deterred from this great work. Uh, there goes into see is the the false allies and just seeing how that this goes and progresses it says Shemaiah a secret informer said let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you indeed at night they will come to kill you Shemaiah was supposed to be someone on Nehemiah's side. And he's saying, let's do this. Let's go into the temple. Let's hide. Now, I don't know if you're picking up on this, but this is not going to be good for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is to be an example of one who trusts God and believes in the power of God rather than one who's going to go and hide from these people. And so here's what his response, Nehemiah's response to them. He says, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go in the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah was making it very clear. I am not going in there to save my life. I'm not there because be concerned about my skin. Uh, I am not here because of my role to protect myself. His role was to build the wall. Okay, His role was not just to be safe. Okay? It was not his biggest concern about being safe. Because he knew his God would keep him safe. You, you ever wonder if Paul was that way? What's the safest decision in this thing? When I go into this city and I preach the gospel and they throw big rocks at me. Okay? And, and you think about that, he's done that, and then it says he goes to the next city, which seems to make sense to me, okay? But then the very next thing, he goes back to the place that just left him for death. Paul had no sense of understanding of safety, right? It was not safety first in Paul's life. Now, I'm not advocating that we ought to do things risky and, and things along that line, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what Nehemiah wanted to say is my responsibility wasn't just to look out for my own life. I had a bigger responsibility because I'm looking out for the reputation of God. And so as we, as we look at... Uh, uh, Next thing he says, then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. This guy was hired to distract him, to go into the temple, not for anything just to keep him from being able to do the work, but also so that they could have something to say against him. Up to this point, Nehemiah is right. Everything that was being said were all just lies and made up. But if they could get Nehemiah, to misuse the temple, to use it for his own safety, then they would have something to be able to hang on him. He says that I should be afraid and act that way, and notice what he said, and sin. Okay? Nehemiah recognized that his decision to go and do what Shemaiah said would have been sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. That... Um, it might be evident that they 
that Nehemiah didn't really believe that this was God's mission. That Nehemiah didn't really believe that this was a great work. Nehemiah didn't really believe that his God would protect him. And so Nehemiah recognized that this was important to the testimony of what he was doing. And often, if we could just take this and put it in illustration with us as believers, too often we are fearful of men and fearful of governments and fearful of all these various things. And I'm not saying this for the sake of stand up and just you know, do these things. I'm saying as far as the sake of the gospel, of preaching the gospel and doing that what God's called us to do and not being swayed by, by those things. I'm not talking about political things at all in this particular point, but the realization that we have not believed that God is the provider of safety in our lives. We are not citizens of this world. Amen. We are citizens of heaven. And when we are distracted by our fear of what's going on around us, we are not good testimonies of a powerful God. We are testimonies of ones who have feared maybe the glory days are gone or this has happened or whatever, and we do not recognize that our God is a powerful God and he sees all nations as a drop in a bucket and he sees the fact that we need to do uh, the work that he has called. Nehemiah wasn't willing to defame the name of God by trying to protect himself and say, God can't protect me, so I'm going to go in and hide with Shemai. Uh, but he was strong, uh, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Uzziah did similar. Uh, in the, this next uh, slide, as we, we consider Uzziah's pride, he misused the temple. He was prideful, uh, and he transgressed the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Saul wasn't in the temple, but was in what they had at the time when he was supposed to uh, wait for uh, Samuel to come and make the offering, and he goes ahead and does the offering. Saul, in his fear of men, he says, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come. Uh, this uh, throwing under the bus of Samuel here. It's your fault that this didn't happen. You didn't show up when you were supposed to. Uh, and as a result, I had to take matters in my own hand and make the sacrifice. I didn't want to do it, but I had to do it because you weren't here to do it type of a thing. And uh, as a result, uh, he said uh, come, uh, you didn't come within the appointed day time and that the Philistines... Uh, they will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplications to the Lord. In other words, he misunderstood the whole concept of the, what uh, Samuel's role was, etc. And he says, this is why I did it. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. What was he compelled by? He was compelled by his fear of the people, and he was compelled by the fear of what could happen. He was not compelled by the fear of really of God and uh, so as a result he had um, he had kind of done similar to what Nehemiah was trying not to do uh, dangerous ties this is an interesting study and I won't spend much time in it but uh, for those that like to dig in these type of things but it's uh, where Nehemiah is now talking about the connections between Sanbal, Tobiah and Geshem and people within the wall that there were some kind of alliances that were there. He says that the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and letters came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. 
There was intermarriage going on there. So now you had a situation where they were not even supposed to intermarry into the uh, Ammonite uh, uh, tribe and etc. But you have that and they are pledged in that. So you have a situation where Nehemiah is trying to protect the people from these enemies that at one time said, we are going to kill you. We're going to come and destroy you. When you're not, when you least expect it, expect it kind of a thing. And as a result, now these guys are, they're okay. You know, uh, they, they, what happened? They were the ones threatening the life. But now they're, they're connected in there and they're receiving letters and sending letters. They're reporting forth and back. Uh, it goes on in verses 17 and 18. It said, And his son Jehonahan had married the daughter of Meshullam. So they're intermarried in regard to that situation. And they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobias sent letters to frighten me. Uh, the whole uh, in insider thing is going on uh, in regard to that. Now, I'm not trying to make any kind of uh, correlation with local church. Uh, the correlation I want to make on this is just what do we struggle with that we think are our friends in our lives, that we think are good for us, and really all they're doing is creating more problems for us. Those maybe idols that we have, those things that we hang on to too tight, that distract us from doing the work of the ministry, detract, dis detract us from being disciple makers and recognizing that they may seem like they're good for me, but they're really not. And here we have a situation where Nehemiah was very much aware that these were all designed to kind of bring down the, the experience that they have there, stir up things. Now, I can say this that Paul uh, indicated this in the New Testament, that there were regularly those in the church that had it as their mission to cause difficulties within the church. And uh, whether you call them the uh, sheep and uh, the wolves in sheep's clothing or, or, or whatever you want to say, there are individuals in churches, not saying there's any in your church, okay? Uh, there are in churches that uh, they are uh, really not happy when disciples are being made. They're not happy when the gospel is going out. They're not happy when there's unity and harmony within the church. And uh, as a result, they will seek to stir up and, and create uh, issues in regard to that. Uh, and then so the second thing I want to look at, the first point was very long, okay? Not all of them are the same length, okay? Because you're all looking at this saying, I got to go eat sometime, man. Um, but the second one is just simply celebrating the work. Uh, first part is just reminding us we have a good work to do. We got good work to make disciples. Uh, Nehemiah said this, so the wall was finished. 52 days. What couldn't be done in decades Nearly nine decades. What wasn't done in nine decades, they accomplished in two months. If you haven't read through Nehemiah 1 through 6, wonderful read to see how they did. Chapter 3 in particular, how they all worked together. It fits very well with the spiritual gifts you were talking about earlier this morning. That they all picked their area and worked, and they worked in unity and in harmony, and they all had a task, and they all saw the work going forward. That's a picture of what the local church has to be. We all have to work. There's no sense in 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. No one makes sense at all. That's not the way it's designed. That's why spiritual gifts are given to us is so that we can do the work of the ministry. 52 days. All the nations around us saw these things. And listen to this. All that stuff saying we're on your side, 
come on over to Ono, we'll, we will help your reputation, we will do all these type of things. It was not an issue that maybe Nehemiah was paranoid. It wasn't an issue that there was just this conflict of uh, personality type of thing. It wasn't just an issue of maybe misunderstanding. Here's what it says. This is what happens when they did the work and finished the work of God, and they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. In other words, the enemies recognized God was being glorified and God's work was being done and they were disheartened because they were genuinely enemies. They might have been those angels of light that were trying to give them the idea that, hey, Nehemiah is just stirring up trouble. He's just causing you a lot of pain. He's causing all this type of stuff. We just need to, you know, get reasonable. Let's not be so fanatical about this building of the wall type of thing. Uh, in the same respect, let's not be so fanatical about being these disciple makers and developing uh, dis- disciples. Uh, in celebrating, you have to ask the question, is your work a great work for God? Nehemiah said this, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. He says that in uh, uh, six verses 3 and also verses 9 uh, where those those quotes come from and he is saying I have a great work but it's a work of God who strengthens us we know that in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 Apostle Paul is talking to the people of Corinth has encouraged them of the great power of the resurrection and that great task of being able to uh, share that gospel that he introduces at the beginning of the chapter of, of, of chapter 15. And he says at the end in chapter 58, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When we are doing God's work, it's not in vain. It may not always look fruitful. It may not always look like it's being as successful as we'd like. And it may even be painful, but it's not in vain. And so we, Nehemiah celebrated the work and recognized. How do we celebrate the disciple-making? We don't, we don't have the walls. We don't have the gates. We don't have all those type of things. We don't have the visuals like that. But how do we celebrate? Is it celebrated in seeing someone come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? When we see the baptisms take place, is that not a great time to celebrate God's testimony of a work in a a person's life? Uh, When we see uh, marriages that are being restored because of the gospel of God coming into their life, when we see individuals who have been in conflict for a long time and they finally work it out like Yudi and Syntyche were in conflict with each other and they said help these people work through that do we see that as the power of God of the celebration of what is happening and so we first of all need to see what is celebratable what's a win what is a win in church I think that's sometimes the hard thing for for some of the churches I'm working with it's just having enough money to get a pastor it's just having enough money so we don't keep the so we can keep the lights on. It's just uh, being able to have one new set of visitors, <laughs> and may they be Sunday school teachers, and could they be a treasurer and a deacon and all these kind of things. And and so those are the wins. But what is a win to God? A win to God is when we lovingly use His gospel to see lives transform. That's a win. And sometimes it's not that impressive, but it is to God, and we ought to celebrate that. Third item, implementing structures. Nehemiah 
built the walls with these people. They hung the gates. They did all these type of things. We're in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, where the ministries increased. It says, Then it was when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. Now, as I look at that, I think this is so cool. I mean, you're putting people into place. People are incredibly important. And I could see why they didn't have gatekeepers before. You don't have a wall, you don't need a gatekeeper. That's pretty obvious, right? Uh, but why did they have to appoint singers? Why weren't they singing before? Why wasn't there already singers? Why wasn't there singers that were there when Nehemiah showed up? Why couldn't there be singing? I don't know why. I don't know the answer to that one. But why weren't they singers? Why weren't the Levites doing what the Levites ought to be doing? Why weren't uh, uh, the, the, the things taking place that needed to take place? I'm not sure why. But I see that sometimes in churches too. That they're just not people in place. They're not people using their spiritual gifts, talents, or however you want to look at it. It's just people not using that which God has given to them. And honestly, my answer to a difference between talents and gifts, it's really hard to tell. And it's hard to polarize those things. But one thing I can tell you, if you're using your talent, but you're not giving God the glory, then it's definitely not that. You should use your talent, give God the glory. Your spiritual gift, give God the glory. The whole point is you give God the glory. Uh, it doesn't matter really how you define it. Uh, it's just recognizing whatever talent you have, no matter how hard you worked at it, it's all because of the grace of God. Because anything can happen to you. You could be right in the midst of doing all your awesome pull-ups and something happened to keep you from being able to go through that. <laughs> all right, my friend? Because <laughs> any of the great athletes that are out there, they know that they have a lease on when they can play because it only takes one thing to happen like that. It's not as evident for us, but uh, sometimes as you read through the newspapers and recognize we have what we have by the grace of God. We can do what we do because of the grace of God. Work hard, but trust in God. Uh, then second of all, letter B, uh, the leaders were developed. Um, you know, the, uh, the ministries that were put into place, uh, i just go back to that. I, I missed a piece. I was going to say that much of the structures that we have uh, wherein, you know, Nehemiah used people to put up a structure, okay? We should use structures to help develop people, all right? So if you want to look at it that, that, that way. And some of the things we have in place in structures is not only positions like uh, uh, we, we, we talked about there, the gatekeepers, the singers, et cetera, but also just documents. The documents that we have, uh, your, your church covenant, is a, is a document that keeps things going in a certain direction. Your constitution is designed for that. Uh, things that you have in the place, that your doctrinal statement, very clear, keeps things solid and such. All those things are very important. Those are excellent structures to have. Uh, your philosophy of ministry, uh, the, the things that you put on here as far as what your goals are for this coming year, those things that are inward, outward, upward, all those things are critical to give structure for what, what you're doing. And one of the things that's also very important is making sure things get on a calendar. And one thing that sometimes doesn't make it on a calendar is how are we making disciples? How we can get all the busy things that keep us busy, but how do we get on the calendar that we're making disciples, whether it's individually or corporately as a church? Now we'll go on to point B. Leaders are developed. Then I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for his faithful men 
man and feared God more than many. We have a whole series that we do, we call a journey. It's called the leadership journey. And the whole point of the leadership journey is just help men to be able to look at what leadership is all about and come along on a journey with other men and develop in those particular areas. But if I could really sum it down, it's probably not too much different from what Nehemiah says, faithful and fearing God. Faithful and fearing God. Leadership is about that. Leadership is really about that. You look back in Acts chapter 6 when it's looking at what do they want to help with the widows who are not being cared for in the way they thought they should be. They didn't go out and say, well, who has a lot of experience working with widows? Who has a lot of experience in ordering food? You know, all that type of stuff. Maybe that stuff came in. But who was it that was really godly? Who is it that had a good reputation of caring for people and trusting God? And that's really what we're, we're called to do. And so our encouragement as we come alongside churches is helping churches have strong leadership, not only amongst the men, but also amongst the ladies as they work with that Titus II concept of being able to develop those in, in the church. The work is not done. Uh, three things to take away here. First of all, we need to protect against complacency, that we not just say we've arrived. We've got to that point. Uh, we got most everything done. It's kind of like our house. We got all the walls up. We just don't got trim on, kind of a deal, uh, type of thing. Uh, second of all, celebrate God's work. That means we got to know what a win is, focus on the right win, and celebrate when we hit it, and making sure that it's not celebrating things that are good, but they're not the great work that God has called us to do. And then thirdly, implement the structures. Implement the structures that allow us to do that. As you have set up the idea of having five uh, groups that are reaching out to people who need Christ, that's a structure that you put into place. It's a structure designed to accomplish the making of disciples. And as you, as you look at those other things, those are things you want to be able to implement and make sure they happen and that they are uh, designed to be able to do those things so that you don't look at your chart and you say, the structures are irrelevant, okay? The ministries of the programs are irrelevant because you know they're making disciples. We have a responsibility to make disciples. And there was everybody who was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. May that not be true of this church, that you might be active making disciples. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here with my friends. I thank you so much for how you've used Pastor Aaron uh, here, and I just appreciate so much his love for you. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray for him and as he goes through uh, the challenges he has right now. But, Lord, we know you are a great and a awesome God. And, uh, Lord, we, we believe that this will all contribute to the whole process of reaching this community for Jesus Christ and you being glorified and disciples being made and people being equipped to make disciples. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.